the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we come now before you, we draw close to you around your word, and we pray simply this, that you would uh, give us a vision. Give us a vision again of this new heaven and new earth that you are leading your people to, this place where the followers of Jesus will stand before him, uh, perfected and pure, radiant, lost in wonder. And Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts by your Spirit such that this vision fills our hearts and thereby shapes our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We start with a video from uh, 1986. Some of you will be old enough to remember this. guaranteed to give you the whole picture. Um, we <coughs> the point is, we, we, we think we understand, of course, what is happening as the skinhead grabs the briefcase uh, from the sort of middle-class man, uh, because we interpret it through a grid of uh, experience or education or the media or whatever it might be. There'll be multiple grids, of course. And that impression is that usually when a young man, a skinhead, grabs a briefcase of a middle-aged man, you are witnessing a mugging. Because the point of the advert is that it is, it is only as you get the full picture that you can fully understand what is going on. The big picture gives you the context by which you can rightly interpret the moment when he is grabbed. Not as a mugging, but as an act of salvation. And so it is in life. It is only when you get the full picture, the Bible is going to tell us, that you can fully understand what is going on. As Christians, if we're following the Lord Jesus here, we need to remember that we live in the middle of a story. God's story. And Advent, which, as Pete was saying, begins today and leads up to Christmas, is a season that calls us to lift our eyes beyond the here and now and to recall the bigger story we are in. It's to, it calls us to locate, or perhaps to relocate ourselves again, our, our own personal life stories within the greater story of God's rescue plan accomplished in Jesus and being worked out in history. In particular, Advent is a season in which we seek to shape our story in the light of its final chapter in the light of Christ's final return and the re-establishment of his kingdom, which, if we are following Christ, is our eternal destination. And so over the next uh, three Sundays, we're going to be looking uh, at, literally and theologically, the final chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, which would be a great help to me if you'd have open with you this evening, page 1249, if you've closed it, we'll get you back to Revelation 21. We've had the first 11 verses read to us. We'll get as far, I'm afraid, as verse 3. The final chapter is the most significant chapter in life because the final chapter of which we get a glimpse here from John is eternal And more than that, or equally importantly as that, it is the climax. It is the culmination. It's where we are heading. And therefore, the final chapter has to frame the present, our lives now. It'll help us, I hope we'll see, make sense of the details of our life. It'll help us to know what's important in life because this is where... uh, Well, this is what God is working towards in our world, in our lives. 
You know, we are meaning makers. We give meaning to all things, everything. Everything we do flows from a certain meaning we have. And if we're going to interpret this world, if we're going to process the joys and the sorrows of this life correctly, we need to know what life is all about ultimately. We need to know where God is taking us. When we grasp that, we'll be in a position to process the ups and downs of life. But more than that, it won't just help us to interpret life correctly, it'll also help us to live life rightly. It won't just interpret life, it'll help us to shape life. Because the way we live reflects and is driven by the story that is playing in our hearts and minds. You know, we all have a story playing in our hearts and minds that drives us to do what we do. The hours that we work, the partner that we're seeking, the school that we want, the grades we think we need, etc., etc. It all flows from a story we've got playing in our hearts and minds of what I'm about, of what the world's about, of, what, of where the world's going, of what's important. And the Bible's going to tell us, you know, to live the Christian life, to live God's kingdom life, which is so radically countercultural. To experience the joy of following Christ, the freedom that following Christ brings, we need to know the bigger picture, God's story that we are part of, so that it can shape our present, so that we can make wise decisions. We can increasingly begin to live and to act and to think and to speak in the light of eternity, in the light of our destiny rather than be conformed by the priorities and the values and the pressures of this age. And tonight we begin our study of the end, and we begin with verse 1 of chapter 21. Have a look down. John sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea which is uh, the biblical symbol for chaos and evil. Uh, No more chaos, no more evil. The key point from verse 1 is a basic one, but it is profound. It's a game changer. And it is this. This world and its ways are not ultimate. This world and its ways are not ultimate. There is a new one ahead when this one will be, when this world we are in will be radically renewed and the old ways of sin and death will be eradicated and Jesus' followers will stand permanently in the presence of God, perfected. And one of the key battles, you know, to living and enjoying the Christian life is knowing that. I mean, really knowing it. Knowing it in such a way that we live for it. And it will be a battle, friends, because we live in a world that screams the opposite. We live in a world that screams, this world is all there is, so get what you can while you can. This world is tangible and touchable and seeable and graspable and spendable. And it's constantly calling for our attention. It's constantly wanting to drag our eyes from that far horizon to the here and now to make this all there is wants us to make itself ultimate so that we live for it. We keep in step with it. Always a great pressure on us to conform to the ways of this world, to make ourselves at home here. I think that's probably true, particularly in the prosperous West, isn't it? 
you remember C.S. Lewis um, yeah, wrote that fantastic book, The Screwtape Letters, which I think are being dramatised, or have just been dramatised on uh, Radio 4, I think. And, um, you know, if you haven't read it, it, it it's, it's the story of a, a senior devil talking to a junior devil about the best way to um, uh, sort of trip up Christians. And it's got some fantastic stuff there. He has, has some great insight there. And one of the things he says is this. He's, the senior devil is talking about how, how um, damaging prosperity can be to the Christian. How, how, what a good sort of feeding ground that is for, for the devil and his work. And he says, uh, he says this, quote, <clears throat> this is uh, screw tape, the senior devil talking to a junior devil. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of really being at home in earth, which is just what we want. This world wants us to make us at home here. John's vision lifts our eyes to a further horizon. The curtain is pulled back and we get a glimpse of the world that is to come. We get a glimpse of the renewed creation, God's kingdom restored, our true home. And what the Bible wants to do, what God wants to do by giving us this glimpse of the future is he wants us, well, two things I think here. First, he wants to relativize this world. You know, how much of our sinful behavior, let's just think personally for a moment, how much of our sinful behavior, how much of our destructive patterns of thought or work or whatever it might be flow from being seduced by this world into thinking that this world is all there is, this world is ultimate, the acclaim of this world is all that is worth living and dying for. And so we fall around again with that phrase C.S. Lewis, drink, sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We need to remember that even the good things we enjoy are but a shadow. God's gifts that are are meant to point us to the greater reality that awaits us, yet so easily we make the shadow the substance and we chase shadows rather than God and the reality. It relativizes the joys of this life, it relativizes the sorrows of this life, of course. No matter how difficult a chapter we are living through in the Christian life, and we all at times will go through difficult chapters. Uh, these words remind us that it will never be the final chapter. It will never be the final chapter. The final chapter is eternal and glorious. So it relativizes the here and now. It reminds us what's important. I heard one preacher say this, what happens then tells you what matters now. What happens then tells you what matters now. The eyes of eternity alone can tell us what is worth living and dying for. I heard a great example of this actually just a few days ago. Uh, a friend of... Um, a friend of a friend of mine, a young couple, a Christian couple, got married, and they were having a big sort of discussion. I think about the sort of table they should have in their in their um, kitchen, and you know what colour it should be, and what sort of you know. And actually, they were getting quite bogged down in it, and they were you know, and they were tossing it around. They were sleepless nights and all of it. And in the end, <laughs> and in the end, it's true. You me, they decided that what they would go for is a circular table. Not necessarily, actually, the one they were first thinking about. They decided they would go for a circular table because they thought it would be best suited for hospitality. Now, friends, that is making an everyday decision in the light of eternity. 
isn't it? That is casting the decision in what matters now. What matters now? It's not the color scheme of my kitchen. It's the hospitality that I offer in my kitchen. The relationships I build. The families I build. The friends I look after. That's what matters. That's what's going to last into eternity. If we're studying for hours and hours and hours, if we're working 80-hour weeks, you know, we have a purpose in mind. What hopes and promises are giving direction to our life? Are they the hopes and the promises of the new heaven and the new, <coughs> the new earth? Or are they <coughs> the, the false hopes and promises of this world? What's setting our agenda? What's setting our agenda? The world to come or this one? Remember, Jesus calls his followers to invest in the world to come. Because it's the world that lasts. Are we investing in the things that have eternal significance? Or are we sacrificing our joy in Christ, chasing trinkets? <clears throat> I think about raising children. You know, uh, what am I most interested in for them? You know, am, I, am I going to invest in them spiritually as much as I'll be tempted to invest in them physically or financially? Well, eternity will, will set me straight on that. When I, when, when I think about them in the light of eternity... I've got, to let, I've got to let this vision set my agenda. Remind me what's important. That's where we're going, verse 1. Now have a look at verses 2 and 3. This is what we'll be like. We've seen a little bit about where we're going. Uh, we'll see more next week, by the way. This is what we'll be like, verse 2 and 3. Have a look. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Women, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? In, in John's vision in Revelation, cities are often a picture, they're a portrait of communities of people, uh, quite often. And so the New Jerusalem is a picture of the Christian community gathered in the presence of God. And look how we're described, friends. We're described as a beautiful bride. Uh, perfect and pure and fully prepared to stand before the Lord Jesus who is our groom. Picture yourself there, perfected. No more struggles and frustrations with those sins that, 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 that we struggle with and we battle with. Perfected, free, permanently in the presence of God, given over to total enjoyment, lost in wonder. The kind of enjoyment that one experiences in the wedding reception of a great friend. No cloud on the horizon, just crowns of glory on our heads. Celebrating the one thing worth living for, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us into this place and prepared us for this place by his grace. And the Bible says, you know, if we're trusting in Jesus, actually, there's a sense in which that marriage has begun. Now, we are married in Christ. Christ has saved us. He's made us his own on the cross. He's pledged himself to us. He's given us, in fact, he's given us those glorious white robes to wear. You know, that great exchange has taken place. I may have said this before, but, it, you know, I think of my own marriage to Philippa. I was a... Um, uh, was I? I was a parish assistant, an apprentice working for a church up in Newcastle, and she was a journalist. And uh, you know, when we got married, what's hers became mine, and what's mine became hers. That's how it works in a marriage, uh, which was great for me because I got a salary in a car, 
and uh, she got my student debts and a flute, which uh, <coughs> she never lets me live down. But um, yeah, that's what happens when you get married. And that's the same thing with us in Christ. On the cross, when we put our faith in Christ on the cross, he takes our spiritual debt and our, and our moral and our spiritual rags and he gives us his robes of righteousness, if you like. And he will meet us in the future and we will be restored and radiant, dressed in those robes and we will see him face to face in the new creation. But in the meantime, we live between now and then. We live in an in-between time. We live, if I can put it like this, between the signing of the register and the wedding reception when we'll see him face to face and enjoy that feast with him. We live between promises made and, and sort of physical presence enjoyed. And one of the consequences of that is that life now is preparation for life then. Life now is preparation for life then. In this life then, God is <coughs> spiritually transforming us. He's helping us to put on those robes that he's given us. He's saved us, he's given us them, but we need to put them on. He's fitting us for them, if you like. He's making us into the people we will one day be. That helps us interpret life now, doesn't it? You know, we can hope in the joys, we can hope in the sorrows of our life now when we recast it in the context of the journey God is taking us on. This is where he's taking us. That's what he's making us, that's where we'll be. He's at work now, in the ups and in the downs, transforming us, restoring his broken image in us, preparing us to meet our groom. This vision calls us to look at the messiness of life in a radically different way. Any situation in which we might feel hopeless or stuck, look at verses 2 and 3. Look at it with the journey God is taking us on, with our future in, in view. God would use this, any, every situation to move us on, to transform us, to beautify us. You know, think about the advert we saw at the start. Think about <clears throat> the man with the briefcase being grabbed by the skinhead. You know, that, that particular moment in his life, I take it, would have been a frightening one. That moment when the briefcase is grabbed would have been a frightening one, a confusing one, a fearful one. But of course, moments later, he's able to look back, isn't he, in the light of what was happening and realize that that was necessary. It was a moment in which he was being saved, pulled out of the way. Well, so too with us. We've seen the end of the story. We've seen where God is taking us. We see, therefore, what this journey we are on is all about. Becoming spiritually beautiful, becoming the people we are, making us holy and pure. Now, friends, don't miss me. It doesn't mean that life is suddenly going to become easy with this, with this perspective. But I think it does mean that we can be hopeful. It does mean that we need not despair in the difficult times. Because we can recast it in terms of the journey God is taking us on. I might with the eyes of flesh see darkness and futility. And, but with the eyes of faith I can look ahead to that wedding feast and say God is taking me to this. And even in this, in some mysterious way, even in this event or this season, he is using it in his power. To beautify me. To prepare me. To transform me. I was talking to one of our um, senior saints, in fact, just a few weeks ago, and she was telling me a little bit about her life. She must be in her, she's in her 90s now. 
one of those people you visit and always leave feeling you've been you know, pastored. You know, she does the pastoring, really. And um, she was telling me a little bit about her life, and she was saying, and I hadn't known this, that um, one of her children she had was, um, was severely handicapped uh, and, in fact, died young. And clearly, it had been a difficult time. You know, 60 years ago, there wasn't the sort of support structures there were. I mean, it's a difficult time now if you're raising a handicapped child, of course. And, but then it was even more difficult. Uh, the structures weren't in place. The support systems weren't in place. There was a far greater a social stigma, I think. So it was a difficult time for her and her husband. But she said that she looked at that time, even at the time, actually, and she was able to thank God for that time with her husband. They were both believers at the time. She could thank God even in the midst of a situation that was difficult because she said, you know, we realized that we had come from a very privileged background. We'd been caught up in a world of privilege. We lived on a sort of a a different plane to most people. And she said, having this child completely changed all that. Suddenly we were with everyone else, you know, in, in, in the hospitals and in the clinics. And we were with people from every background, and she said it completely changed my character, enabled me to get on with people from every kind of background, have, have an affinity with people from different kinds of background. It, it, you know, it just, the Lord used it to change me. I mean, a, a remarkable thing to say, isn't it, to look at that with the eyes of faith and see that. Through having a disabled child, she could see, or she was able to see it, she was able to give thanks, even in that, because she knew what God wanted to do in her life. That ultimately, God wanted to, to transform her character, to grow her, to make her spiritually radiant. She knew that's what God wanted to do. She knew that's where he, he was taking her. And she was excited about it. She wanted God to do that. And so she could face even difficult and dark situations. And it was. And there were hard times. But she could face it with hope rather than despair. The glimpse of where God is taking us will help us to interpret, to reinterpret our experiences now. God has not abandoned us. He's at work in us, transforming us and making us ready for this glorious future. And it also, finally, it tells us what's important now, doesn't it? Verses 2 and 3, it tells us what's important now. And that is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. I once heard a, a preacher give this excellent illustration. He said, Imagine a husband and a wife, and uh, they've got some children. Husband is working hard for them. And, um, you know, there's a constant flow of presents from the husband to the wife. He, uh, you know, his clothes and jewelry and flowers. He never forgets a birthday, he never forgets a wedding anniversary. Always quick to take her to, you know, Paris or whatever it is. He carves out time for her weekend break, surprise dinners, that kind of thing. Uh, I wonder how he sounds to you. Too good to be true, maybe. But there's one thing I haven't mentioned, and that is he's having an affair. Now, would we still call him a good husband? Well, he's providing for his wife financially. He's cooking dinner and taking her on weekends away and giving her flowers and just committing adultery. Would we call him a good husband? My hunch is the majority of us would want to say no. He isn't a good husband. The question then becomes why? And the answer is it's because he's betraying his wife at the one point at which it really counts. And that is the promises he made to her. 
on his wedding day. He is not being faithful to her. He has withdrawn himself from her and is now giving her trinkets. All the gifts in the world doesn't balance that unfaithfulness to her as his wife. And as it is in an earthly spouse, so it is with our God. That is what he wants. He has won us. He has made us his bride through the Christ, through the cross. That is where he's leading us, verses 2 and 3. That is what he wants from us. Faithfulness as his bride. Faithfulness is the way of love. And so the question is, as I close, will we remain faithful to Jesus or will we seek fulfillment elsewhere? You know, what am I devoted to? Who am I devoted to? Where is my heart to be found? It's interesting, we had the Shema uh, read and sung to us a little while ago. Isn't that? That's exactly the point. That's what God wants. The Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Where is our heart to be found? This is where, friends, we must each pastor our own hearts. Is it constantly to be found centered upon our possessions or our popularity or our grades or our career? Where is our heart at the moment? Where do we spend most of our time mentally? What occupies our thinking? What, what has our hopes? What has our time? What has our money? Who are we looking for for comfort? Who are we looking to for security? Our job? Our pension? Who are we looking to for joy, for life? We are surrounded by many, many false lovers. Things that would turn our hearts from Christ. Things that would cause us to doubt him. Things that would usurp him. Things that say they can offer something that he cannot. But friends, we we need to put them alongside the Lord Jesus. Just for a moment, put them alongside the Lord Jesus the one who has displayed saving love on the cross, the one who holds us securely in his hand as he leads us to this glorious destination that he has won for us. And you know, when we're lost in wonder around that throne, when we are gazing at our groom, perfected and radiant and pure, free finally from sin, we will wonder why it is we ever took a second glance at some of the false lovers of this world that would push Christ to the periphery and take center stage. If we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, let's look again, and perhaps this week, let's read again verses one to three. Let them fill our vision. Pray for the Lord to make them fill our vision such that they would fill our hearts, such that they would shape our lives. Amen.